to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. All right, guys, grab a seat. Welcome to Veritas. I know first rounds are among us. Many of you have become victims. Some of you have like 12 tests tomorrow. I hope that's not you. Some of you have three tomorrow or this week. I hope you're doing all right. Glad you're here. Uh, If this is your first time at Veritas, you picked a good night to come because we're starting a new sermon series tonight. It's called Big Little Lies. See, in this series, we're going to do some detective work. We're going to be on the hunt for lies that our culture tells us. We're going to be on the lookout for messages that are out there that, that just simply aren't true. We need to be detectives and we need to be on the lookout because these lies, they seem really little, but in reality, when we see things clearly, they're actually really big. These lies are big because if we continue to believe them, then we might not be Christians next year. If you're a Christian tonight, you might not be a Christian next year. These lies are big because if we start following them, then we might stop following Jesus. These lies are big because according to the Bible, they originate from someone other than Jesus. Now, I know it might seem crazy, but according to the Bible, there's somebody out there who wants to see you confused, who wants to see you suffer, who wants to see you destroyed, who would not want nothing more and would delight in nothing more than to see your relationship with Jesus tank. That's someone's Satan. And he has all sorts of different ways and schemes and plans and lies to try to get us to be apathetic about Jesus, to try to get us to misunderstand Jesus, to try to get, a walk, get us to walk away from Jesus. He's a liar. He's a schemer. He's a manipulator. He's tricky. He's sneaky. He's sly. He's smarter than you. He's smarter than me. And Ephesians 6 says this, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I know that's intense. I get it. But I'm bringing it to our attention because the Bible brings it to our attention. These are the stakes. This is the stakes of the story that we're in. And so in an effort to see and to hear and to know and to believe that truth that Jesus is more, we want to take the next five Weeks, five weeks to, to talk about, to name, to look for these big little lies that are out there in our culture today. And here's tonight's big little lie You are your mistakes. A couple of years ago, I was pulling into the library, Daniel Boone Public Library, looking for a spot because the place is always crazy. And, and I saw one right at the last minute, but rather than slowing down and easing into it, I, I was a little bit past it and I just tried to whip it in just really quick. Just <laughs> Turned out my cool guy stunt cost me $750. You see, I accidentally just barely scraped the car next to me. I looked out and I was mad that I was a Christian because I had to do the right thing and leave a note. But I had to look down and it was barely, you could barely see any scratch on the other car. You could see it on my car, uh, but could barely see it on the other car. So I exchanged info. I got the bid, 750 bucks. 
I'm glad I'm a Christian, by the way, in case anybody hears this. Anyway, why did I hit the car? Well, in that moment, if you would have asked me why I hit the, hit the car, I would have defaulted to what psychologists call the fundamental attribution theory. Some of you just passed out because you hear that all the time in class. You don't want to hear it again, right? You know what that is. Fundamental attribution theory. This is the theory that attributes mistakes to external circumstances. And let me tell you about the external circumstances going on in my van. My three kids were all screaming at the very same time, at the very same pitch for three very different reasons. One was too cold in the back. One of them was mad we were going to the library. They wanted to go to bonkers. And one was mad, yeah, it's bonkers. Don't go there, it's bad. And one of them was mad that they hadn't had a snack in the last 30 minutes. So I mean, it's just chaos, right? If people saw me, they would have probably been amazed that I didn't slam into the car rather than scratch it, right? So I, I did that. Because of what was going on in the van, I was distracted. Now, if you would have asked my wife, why did I hit the car? You know what she would have employed? The situational attribution theory. What's that? Well, that means that my identity and a person's identity is attached to something that's inside of me, right? In other words, Polly would say, my my husband hit the car because he's a bad driver, right? No, there's crazy things going on right? Fundamental attribution theory. No, situational attribution theory. I'm a bad driver, right? I just realized I got those switched up, by the way. Situational attribution theory, external circumstances. Some of you are correcting me like, he's getting it wrong. It's getting it wrong. It's the opposite. Situational attribution theory, external mistakes, fundamental attribution theory, something inside me. I'm a bad driver, right? Here's the interesting thing about these theories. Most of the time when we see somebody, did I get it wrong again? I'm just going to keep going. We'll see what happens here. If I'm confused, you're confused. We're going to keep going. Goodness gracious. Here's the interesting thing about these theories, right? Most of the time when we see somebody else make a mistake, we default to the fundamental attribution theory. In other words, we assign their identity to the mistake that they made, fundamental attribution theory. We think that that person, when they make a mistake, the only thing that comes to their mind, that's who they are. So if they were wearing one of those name tags, which you guys have and hopefully didn't write on, if you did, it's okay. If they were wearing the name tag, it would say, hello, my name is... And then their mistake, their mistake would be on it. So if you saw me hit that car, my name tag would be bad driver. But when we evaluate our own mistakes, when we evaluate our own mistakes, we default to the situational attribution theory. In other words, our identity, it's not attached to the things that we do. We chalk up our own mistakes to the external circumstances, to the situations. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. My name tag shouldn't say that I'm a bad driver. I only did that because my kids were crazy, right? So, so who's right? Was I just having an off day or, or am I a bad driver? What about Justine Sacco? Maybe you've heard this name. She was the senior director of a corporate communications firm. And, and a few years ago, she was boarding a flight from New York City to South Africa for a, a conference for work. And just before takeoff, she's tweeting little jokes about the idiosyncrasies and the funny things about travel. And right before she took off, she sent one last tweet. This is what she said. Going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. That's a big mistake. Not okay. Big mistake. 11 hours later when that plane landed, she turned her phone back on and she got a text from her best friend that said, you need to call me immediately. She called a friend and found out that she had the number one worldwide trend on Twitter. You see, in those 11 hours in the air, she couldn't get access to her phone. Chaos was happening 
on the ground because of that tweet. There's a hashtag trend that started worldwide. It said, hashtag, has Justine landed yet? Tens of thousands of angry tweets had been posted, understandably so, in response to that tweet. One person commented, they said, seriously, this is on Twitter, seriously, I want to go home and go to bed, but everyone at the bar is so into hashtag, has Justine landed yet? I can't look away. I can't leave. Another Twitter user wondered if anybody would be in the airport when she would land. She asked somebody to take a picture. Somebody did, posted her, posted her picture online. She was fired by her employer a few hours later, even before the plane touched the ground. And as the dust of this crisis began to settle, there was one final tweet posted. It said, sorry, Justine, your tweet lives on forever. See, the majority of our culture employed the fundamental attribution theory. Justine is her mistake. It's who she is. No need to look into the facts. No need to hear her point of view. No need to hear the other side. From this day forward and forever, she's a racist. She's a bigot, and she deserves what she gets. She is boiled down to that 64-character tweet. What about somebody a little closer to home in Columbia? Maybe some of you have heard the name Paige Laurie. If you didn't know, Mizzou Arena, the basketball arena, it didn't always used to be called Mizzou Arena. See, back in 2004, when the stadium was being built, the, the Lori family, heirs of the, the Walmart uh, company, <clears throat> billionaires, they were one of the main financers of the stadium, and they got naming rights. And for better or worse, they decided to name it after their daughter, Paige. And so the new name of the, are- of the arena was Paige Sports Arena. Why'd they change it? Well, it wasn't because it was just a bad name to begin with. No offense, Paige, right? It was because it was revealed that Paige cheated her way through school at USC, You see, shortly after that stadium was named, a new story broke. It turns out a student at USC, the college that Paige was attending at the time, came forward and said Paige Laurie paid her $20,000 to complete most of her academic assignments in her time at USC. Exams, papers, tests, you name it. And so because Mizzou didn't want their new stadium associated somebody, uh, with somebody who cheated their way through school, they changed the name to Mizzou Arena. The majority of Columbia Mo, myself included, employed the fundamental attribution theory. Paige is her mistake. It's who she is. No need to look into the facts. No need to hear about it from her point of view. From this day forward, she is forever and will always be a cheat. She deserves what she gets. She's boiled down to the mistake and the mistakes that she made in college. I wonder, what would people say about your mistakes? If your worst mistake from high school, caught up to you, made its way to the, to the pages of the Missourian, how would you feel? What would happen? If somebody documented your worst mistake last weekend on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, how would you feel? What would you tell yourself? How would you interpret that? The fundamental attribution theory? You are that mistake? Or would it be the situational attribution theory? You're just having a bad day. That's not the real me. Let's pretend for a second that you made a mistake, honest mistake last week. You genuinely, I don't know, forgot to pay the parking meter. You said something kind of dumb in your group of friends or in a class that made you look a little and feel a little dumb, right? You missed some questions on a test that you should have gotten right. Or maybe let's pretend that you actually made a mistake that you knew was morally wrong, you knew was sinful, you knew wasn't okay. Maybe you got drunk this weekend. Maybe you hooked up with somebody this weekend. Maybe you said something encouraging to somebody's face, but then went and talked about them behind their back, tore them down so that you would look good 
at their expense. Maybe you sent a verbally abusive text to somebody. Maybe you sent provocative pictures to someone. Maybe you posted something that tarnished someone's reputation. Maybe you wanted to go to bed. You really wanted to, but you stayed up late and you hit the search bar on Instagram and one thing led to another and you know where that goes. Were you having a bad day? Or is that who you are? See, here's the deal. Satan loves the fundamental attribution theory. He loves it. He loves to attribute people's identity to their worst mistake. He loves to get us to believe the big little lie that we are our mistakes because if we believe this lie, if we believe this lie, then we have no hope. We are offered no grace. We get no forgiveness. Our mistakes can be pretty hard teachers, yeah? They leave us isolated and paralyzed and insecure and anxious, and depressed, and ashamed, and lonely. Satan loves the fundamental attribution theory. You are your mistake. You are your mistakes. You are boiled down to what happened yesterday, last week, last year. And here's the deal. If you continue to listen to Satan, then you're going to stay far away from Jesus. If you continue to listen to Satan, you're going to stay far away from Jesus because if you continue to buy into this, this fundamental attribution theory and believe that your mistakes, if you continue to believe that the worst mistake that's written on that name tag is who you are, well, then you're going to stay far away from Jesus. Why? Well, you're going to stay far away from Jesus because you're going to assume he doesn't want you. You're going to stay far away from Jesus because you think that you can't stand in his presence. You'll assume that his promises don't or couldn't apply to you. If you stay away from Jesus for too long, you're going to start misunderstanding what Jesus said. Or you're going to come to conclusions about Jesus that are wrong. Or you're going to start looking to change the name on that name tag on your own. And that never goes well. Maybe it goes well for a while, but in the end it never works. And if you stay away from Jesus for too long, You might even start to become hardened to Jesus, calloused to Jesus, bitter towards Jesus because you think you're doing fine without him. We don't need him. He's not doing anything for me. Maybe you're there right now and nobody even knows it. Maybe you find yourself drifting there. But thankfully, God, he doesn't employ the fundamental attribution theory. He doesn't boil us down to our worst mistake. He doesn't connect uh, connect who we are with what we do, right? No, surely God employs the situational attribution theory. We're not our mistakes. We're just having a bad day. This is who we really are, right? Well, Romans 3 might have a a little bit different of a say here. Romans 3, verse 9, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Those are hard verses. They're difficult verses to hear because they're filled with identity statements. No one is righteous. Everyone is worthless. All have become worthless. It seems like God actually does employ the fundamental attribution theory, just like Satan. Who's right? What do we do with this? There's, there's a tension there that, that I feel. I hope you feel it. What's the way afford? What do we do with those sinful mistakes that are on our name tags? What do we do even with the non-sinful, uh, just accidental mistakes that we tend to identify with ourselves? We find some clarity and we find a way forward in kind of an obscure Old Testament book 
2,500 years old of all places. If you have a Bible, go to the book of Zechariah. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. If you don't have your Bibles, you can just look it up here on the screen in a second. You see, we need this book. We need the book of Zechariah because it teaches us what we need to put on those name tags. You see, Zechariah gives us hope because in the verses that we're about to read, we're learning that there's a way to erase our mistakes. We learn that we don't have to be boxed in by what we did last weekend or last semester or last year, but there's only one way that this happens. There's only one way that this happens. Only one way to gain that true freedom from our mistakes. Only one way to replace that shame and guilt and anxiety and fight against the loneliness and the anxiety and the depression and the isolation. All we need to do is erase that mistake and write down one word behind me on the screen. God's. We erase that mistake and we replace it with God's. If we want to distance ourselves from our mistakes, if we want to stop applying that fundamental attribution theory that we are our mistakes to ourselves and to other people, and if we want to find the power to fight anxiety and depression and isolation and loneliness and shame and insecurity, then we need to write the word God's on that name tag. Because if God's is on our name tag, then it means we belong to God. Think about it. Hi, my name is God's. We belong to God. It means that we're no longer defined by that mistake. It means that we can fight back, that we have something to say back to Satan because if we're gods, then contrary to what you might tell yourself, contrary to what culture might tell you, contrary to what Satan for sure tells you and me, you are not your mistakes. You're gods and this changes everything. This changes everything. Zechariah chapter three teaches us that to belong to God, it means three things for us. It means that we're valued, means that we're cleansed, And it means that we're useful. First, you're valued. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So at the time that this book was written, Joshua is the high priest in the temple of the Lord in the city of Jerusalem. Now God's people, called the Israelites, they were just in exile in Babylon for 70 years, but they had come back a few decades later. They were in exile for 70 years, came back. And at this point in time in history, the temple had finally been rebuilt. The sacrificial system was up and running again. Okay, it, it's collapsed after Jerusalem was overrun, destroyed, Israel sent to Babylon, things are on hold, they come back up and running again. And that's a good thing because this is how God designed things to run in and among his people. And key people in the sacrificial system were the high priests. High priests were vessels of God's blessing to the rest of the people. One of the ways, main ways God blessed the Israelites was through the priests as they made the sacrifices, Right? So let's use another illustration to make this a little more clear. Think about water and pipes, right? Pipes carry the water from one place to another. You get a broken pipe, well, the water can't get there. Or you have contamination in the water. It's the same thing with these priests in Israel. The priests had to meet certain rules and laws and regulations in order to be a useful pipe. That would be the means by which the blessings would flow to God's people. And if these priests broke any of the laws, any of the regulations, then they were not fit to be used by God. Now, with all that in mind, let's go back and look at verse three. Notice what Joshua was wearing. He was dressed in filthy clothes 
as he stood before the angel who represents God's presence. This is not going to cut it. Priests were not supposed to be dressed. They were supposed to be dressed in clean clothes. And filthy clothes like these meant that Joshua was contaminated. And that meant that the blessings that God wanted to give to the people would be contaminated. And the people would then become contaminated too. You see, Joshua has made a huge mistake by standing in the presence of God with these filthy clothes. And guess what? You heard it. Satan lets him know about it. He's whispering in his ear. Look at verse one. Satan is standing at Joshua's right hand, accusing him. He's accusing Joshua about these filthy clothes. He's using this mistake against him. You don't belong here. God could never use you. You can't be here. God could never want you. You're damaged goods. You're not accepted. Does that sound familiar? Think back to those mistakes. To use a little bit of a different illustration, think back to those mistakes. What are those mistakes that you're wearing? How is Satan using them against you? In what ways is he telling you that you're not wanted by God, that God could never accept you, that God could never use you, that people could never accept you, that you're damaged goods, that you're filthy and dirty and shameful? But what does God do? Look back to verse two. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. The Lord rebukes Satan, not Joshua. He starts in on Satan, not once, but twice. Whenever you read Hebrew narrative, a story like this, anytime you see repeated words and phrases, that's the equivalent of bold and italics and underlining. The author is trying to get us to see what is God doing? He's not taking Joshua to task. He's taking Satan to task, not once, but twice. Why? Well, because God values Joshua. And guess what? God values you. He values us. You're not your mistakes. You're God's, which means you're valued. He loves you. He likes you. Those mistakes, no matter how big or how small, how trivial, how seemingly insignificant might be, those don't define you. They're not enough to keep God from you. You're not your mistakes. You're God's. And that means you're valued. But not only are you valued, you're cleansed. So to be cleansed implies that we were dirty. We were soiled. We were rotten. We were not worthy. We were sinful, spoiled. And Joshua was all of those things because of the filthy clothes that he's wearing in God's presence. But then we get to verse four. Verse four, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off the filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Notice the angel said that Joshua's sin was taken away. Those filthy clothes, that mistake, for whatever reason, whatever it was, it was sinful. It needed to be cleansed. Something needed to be done. Remember I said earlier how God seems to employ and hold to that fundamental attribution theory? Well, this is another reason why. We're sinners. When we sin, when we fail to live up to God's standards, when we do what we want, when we want, how we want, no matter what, well, that runs deep. It stains us. It affects us so much that it goes right down to the core of who we are. It stains our very identity. And our sins go deep, and that sin is offensive to God. Think about it like this. Imagine a kid punches a student in the face. What's gonna happen to that student? He's going to the principal. Well, imagine the same kid next week punches the teacher in the face. That, that kid's going to the principal, and he's probably gonna get maybe even expelled. Imagine somebody punches a policeman in the face. You're going to jail. Imagine somebody punches the president 
in the face. All jokes aside, that person's going to jail for a long, long time, longer than he would if he punched the policeman. What's the point? What's the same thing? A punch. What's the difference? The difference is who was punched. If you could imagine how long you go to jail for punching the president, what would happen if we punched God? Could you imagine the repercussions for that? Because guess what? Our sin is a punch in the face of God. It's offensive. I wish, I wish that those sins, those offensive things, I wish they could be washed away. I wish that we could wipe them away by the good things that we do, by the good intentions that we have, by the good vibes, right? But it can't. It needs cleansing. Now, having said all that, many of the mistakes we've made, they're not sinful. Some of them are, but some of them aren't. Some of them were accidents that we didn't intend, and that's fine, but some of them are. Some of them are sinful. For a mistake to be sinful means we've done something or failed to do something that God has explicitly said is wrong, that we should not do. Some of us in here get that. Right? Some of you know that. I don't have to convince you of anything. You're filled with shame and guilt over it. You've got Satan in your head every minute of every day, of every hour, of every year, of every month, right? And it just doesn't stop. I'm not really speaking to you in this moment right now because you get that, but there's some of us that I think might be missing. I think there's some of us in here that are miscategorizing those mistakes, meaning we've done something sinful and not really bothered by it. We don't see it as that big of a deal. That sexual sin, yeah, I know, I get it. I've been to church long enough. I know I probably shouldn't have done it, but look, everybody's doing it. I was smart about it. It was consensual. I didn't hurt anybody. The drunkenness, the partying, whatever it is, yeah, I get it, right? I've been to church long enough. I know, but I'm with my friends. We got a sober driver. It's not hurting anybody. The cheating, everybody does it. If I don't cheat, I'm gonna fail out. My GPA is gonna tank. I'm not gonna get the internship. I've gotta cheat. The gossip, yeah, I, I said something to a couple people, but it's not that big of a deal, right? They deserved it anyway, to be quite honest. Maybe some of you just internally rolled your eyes. You went, yep, here we go. Tune me out because I already know. I come here often enough and you just talk about the same things. I could have said that, sexual sin, drunkenness, cheating, gossip. That's actually making my point. That's actually making my point. I know we stand up here and we talk about these things a lot, but do you know why? It's because people, we continue to do them. We continue to do them and don't see any problem with it. I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm not mad about it, but, I, but, but we need to hear and need to hear it's not okay. Right? Those sinful mistakes, they're offensive to God and they need to be cleansed. Do you see that? If not, Satan might be winning. Satan might be winning because he's convinced you otherwise. Maybe he's made us apathetic. I don't know. But of course, the good news, as we just read, is, is those sinful mistakes, they've been cleansed. Verse 4 See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. God took Joshua's sin away. Joshua couldn't do it himself. We can't do it ourselves. We can't cleanse our own sin, and we can't fix our own mistakes. Only God can. But catch this. It's so plainly obvious we need to stop and think about it just for a second. God actually cleansed our sin. God actually cleansed our sin. It's all over the place. Psalm 103. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions for us. How? You know. See, in his time, Zechariah wasn't exactly sure how this cleansing of Joshua would take place. It's about 
500-ish years before Jesus. You see, he had to have faith that somehow, some way, God would do this. We've got the benefit of hindsight. We know how Joshua's sinful mistake was cleansed, how our sinful mistakes are cleansed through the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, Romans 8, 1, everybody should memorize this verse Therefore, there's, no now, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I need to hear that again and again and again. You're not your mistakes. You're God's. And you're cleansed. And because we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, guess what? God can now employ the situational attribution theory. If you're a Christian, guess what? That applies to you and that applies to me. The situational attribution theory. We're no longer boiled down to our mistakes. We're no longer seen by God as sinners. Our mistakes are not written on that name tag. Why? Well, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did. Jesus is how the mistakes that we made in the past, how the mistakes we will make in the future are separated from our identity. This is what we believe. This is what we tell ourselves when Satan is whispering and condemning and shaming. Punch him in the face with it, right? Tell him, no, no, I'm not my mistakes. I'm not boiled down to what happened last weekend, sinful or not. That's not who I am. I know who I am. I'm God's because I'm valued, because I'm cleansed. And last one, because I'm useful. Because I'm useful, Continuing on in Zechariah, verse five, then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you a place among these standing here. See, God fixed the broken pipe that was Joshua. His filthy clothes are now replaced with clean ones. And that signifies that Joshua is once again able to fulfill his role, live out his duty as the high priest of Israel. So he's been restored as a viable channel through which God's blessings can now flow to the people. And they can now, they can now be cleansed and experience God's blessings. Now that Joshua's fixed, he's useful to God. He's no longer damaged goods. He gets to continue to play a meaningful role. You heard it in there. He gets to the task of governing God's temple and its courts. Now, contrary to my, what we might think and what you might experience, the same is true for us today. We're actually able to play a meaningful part in God's story. You see, God created us, everybody, with the capacity to make a difference in the world. Sounds idealistic, but it's true for his glory and for our good. I wanna get really practical here just for a couple minutes, so stay with me. All of us has been, have been gifted with talents and with skills. All of us have a desire to, to make a difference in the world, to contribute to something meaningful, to play a part in something bigger than ourselves. We don't want the size of our lives to shrink down to the size of our lives, right? We all get that. That's a good thing. It's, it's from God. That's how we're wired. If you've been around church for a while, you may have heard this uh, phrase called calling, Right, a calling from God. That's, a, that's an okay word. Uh, there might be some baggage. Sounds kind of churchy and weird. Nobody talks about that too much. If you do, that's fine. Here's what a calling is. It's essentially you're useful to God in some way. It's what God wants you to do. It means that God has some plan in mind for you and for me. Now, on the one hand, it's a good thing, knowing that we have a plan 
You've got a job to do. Nobody likes to stand around some sort of, you know, if you've been on a work trip, stand on a work site or in a group project, you have nothing to do. It's like, why am I here? That's stupid. No, you want something to do. It feels good to be useful. But on the other hand, if you have a calling, that can be really frustrating because you might not actually know what that is. You might be paralyzed by choice. It might be extremely stressful and paralyzing because there's so many choices, so many options before you. It's paralyzing because, look, if you say yes to one thing, guess what? You just said no to 50 other things. If you go down one path, you can see all the other paths that you didn't take. And and if you're like me sometimes, you start to question yourself. Am I on the right path? Did I make the right choice? I don't know. This is harder than I thought. I'm not as good as what I'm doing as I thought that I was. It's a little more boring than I thought. I look over here. I see all these people on these other paths, and they look like they're having fun. They seem to be confident, but guess what? Those people on those paths are thinking the same thing. Wow, I don't know if I like this, but I see them over there. They look pretty good. It's, it's, it, it's paralyzing. It's like a hamster wheel. It's difficult. I get it. Now, we don't have time to, to go into all of the specifics, how to determine our callings, but I want to make one important distinction that I really think is going to help us, give us some perspective on how we can be useful for God. Here's the distinction. We need to distinguish between capital C callings and lowercase c callings. Capital C callings, lowercase c callings. Capital C callings apply to all Christians, in all times, in all places. These are moral issues, moral decisions. You look back at the verses, Joshua was given a capital C calling. Did you hear it? Verse seven, the beginning. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements. That capital C calling was to obey God, to seek to be faithful to the Ten Commandments, right? That's what requirements is referring to. Joshua's past mistake did not give him a pass on future obedience. The mistake he made yesterday did not give him the excuse as to why he could not obey today. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us. That most important capital C calling we have from Jesus is to walk in new obedience and to keep his requirements no matter what year in college you are no matter what city you're getting ready to move to, no matter where you go over the summer for an internship, no matter what your major is. But guess what? Joshua also got a lower C calling. These are non-moral issues and decisions. There's no like real right or wrong answer here. End of verse seven. Then Joshua, you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. Joshua's particular role to play in his time and his day among the people of Israel was to be a high priest. Now there were all sorts of jobs Within the people of Israel, you got blue collar jobs, you got a farm, you got to cook, you got to clean, you got to bake, you got to do all that. There's white collar jobs. You're going to be a priest, you're a scribe, Pharisee, something like that. It's true for us too, right? There's all sorts of things that we could choose to do. All sorts of things. I mean, there's 300 plus degree programs at Mizzou. Some of you already know that. You've gone through 100 of them already, still don't know what you want to do, right? I get it. We, we, so there's a lot. Now, we don't have time to talk about how to discern specifically these lowercase c things. If, if you want to talk later, that's fine. Shoot me an email, talk to me. But a great first step, just, you know, where to start this, figure out the decisions that lay before you. Are they capital C callings? Are they moral issues? Are they lower c, lower, lowercase c callings? There's no real right or wrong answer. Now, now, let me go back to our main point. Our past mistakes do not qualify us from being useful. You know what Satan's gonna do? He's gonna camp out on our shoulder. And he's gonna say, look, you can't obey God anymore because of that mistake. You can't do it. It's pointless, so stop trying to obey. He's gonna say that what you're doing now, what we're doing now, 
Maybe the small little things, going to class, going to small group, reading our Bible, something little and small and insignificant, it's not gonna make any difference. So you should just quit, slack off, be lazy. It doesn't matter. He's gonna pit those callings, capital C callings, lowercase c callings, against one another, the dreaded either or. You know what? Here's how this plays out. You know, all of God wants of me, I'm on fire for God. I'm gonna obey him. I don't care about my classes. I just want to be faithful to God. You ever heard that? You ever believed that? It's wrong. It's both. God cares about our obedience, yes. And he cares about your classes. He cares about your jobs. He cares about your social life, whatever, all the little lowercase c callings. He cares about both. Or the opposite, flip it. Uh, Maybe you said, I'm gonna go on this vacation. Vacation, that'd be nice. Vocation, this job, this field. So look, I've got to spend all my time making connections, meeting the right people, studying, doing great, uh, doing great work, st- uh, preparing for all these things. That leaves me no time for any sort of community, any time to read my Bible, no friendships. But that's okay. God understands because this is what I think he's calling me to. Wrong. If our lowercase c callings come at the expense of our capital C callings, wrong. Satan's winning. It's not either or, it's both and Satan's going to confuse us and shame us and paralyze us when we're making non-moral decisions. You ever think that? Should I join the small group on Mondays or Thursdays? I don't know. I want to make the right choice. Well, maybe I just won't make a decision at all. I can't decide. Satan's winning. Right? Should I take a risk and study abroad this semester? Or should I take the safe place and go back to the inter- internship I had? What's the right choice? God, tell me. I need to know. Satan's winning non-moral decision, right? Now, now please, um, please don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that these decisions don't take wisdom and thought and planning. We have to do those, talk to people about it. It matters, but we should categorize these lower case C callings into maybe wise and unwise choices, healthy, unhealthy choices, not right and wrong. Satan loves to pit those against one another because the shame and the guilt and the anxiety, and they, they just grow. Satan loves that. Satan loves that. Call the music team back up. Let's just, let's just zoom out. Let's go back to where we started. How are you believing that big little lie that you are your mistakes? What's on the name tag? Here's the deal. Jesus wants you and he wants me. He wants all of us to make a new name tag. He wants us to make a new name tag. You and I are not our mistakes. We're God's. This means that we're valued. It means that we're cleansed, and it means that we're useful. Okay, you've seen the, the name tags on your seat. Maybe you wrote something already on there. Why don't you scratch whatever you wrote on there? And again, I want to do something maybe seems a little cheesy, but just for this week, I wonder what difference this could make in our lives. I want you to take that name tag, and I want you to write the word God's on it. I want you to write God's. G-O-D apostrophe S, God's. And I want you to put that in a place you're gonna see it this week. Put it in your Bible, put it in your journal, put it on the bathroom mirror as you get ready in the morning, put it in your car, put it on your water bottle, put it in a place where you're gonna see it. This week, train yourself to think, I'm God's. And that means I'm valued. And that means I'm cleansed. And that means I'm useful, not my mistakes. This is a way to drown out the voice of Satan. Drown out the big little lie that you are your mistakes. You're not your mistakes. You're God's. The 
the rest of the time, just for a minute, we're gonna dim the lights, music team's gonna keep playing. And I want us to just sit in this just for a minute. Sit in this just for a minute. Think about, talk about, pray about what did God, more did God hit you tonight? I don't know. Maybe talk to him about that mistake that you just can't seem to get past. Maybe ask him for one of those implications to really hit you. Help him to understand. Help him that you would understand that you're valued, that you're cleansed, that you're useful. Let's take the next couple minutes to do that now, and I'll close this in prayer in a minute. Thank you that you took Satan to task. You didn't go after Joshua first. You went after Satan. You don't go after us. You go after Satan. You go after our sin, not us. Thank you for that. Please forgive us for our mistakes that are sinful. Please free us from the guilt, the shame, the anxiety, the depression that weighs us down because of those mistakes that we've made in the past, sinful or not, we need your Holy Spirit to work in and through us because we can't do it on our own. Just this week, God, would you help us to hear your voice? Help us to remember that we're yours, we're God's, and that we're valued, that we're cleansed, that we're useful. Give us insight this week as to into the ways that Satan might try to trip us up. Satan might try to get us to forget this. Be with us because we need you desperately. Thank you, Jesus, that you've cleansed us, that you value us, that you love us, and you see fit to make us useful again. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.